So, good evening. Uh, each evening, we'll have a talk, as many of you know, from previous retreats. It's really our chance to give a more in-depth and expansive exploration of some of the themes of practice bringing together both teachings and instructions on practice and pointing to some of the um, further dimensions of practice. We'll be recording the talk, so they'll be available after the retreat. And one way that in my own practice, I like to approach talks is to sometimes feel the, the general energy and hopefully be energized or hopefully inspired some to continue practice, as well as there being a few insights, tips, understandings that can be applied to practice. There'll be a lot of points and not to try to get all of them, but if you, if they're, three or four things that resonate with you, that's fantastic. That's a way to approach it. And, and can also, if you wish, stay during the talk in your body, even in the heart, even with the meta practice, if that works for you. And so congratulations, the first full day is the hardest. For how many people was this a challenging day? Yeah, ups and downs, and I'll talk, uh, and we'll talk the next two evenings some about the kind of challenges that we have with meta practice and how to work with them, as well as some of the vistas and, and directions. And time is very strange. Uh, I like sometimes to ask, uh, um, even though you know intellectually the right answer, from the lived experience, how many days have you been here? How many think three? <laughs> how many think more than three? <laughs> okay. It's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. The essence of meta practice is to give a direction towards what we might call the awakened heart, actually not separated from the mind or body. It's a pathway, really, to awakening. And it's interesting that there are different uh, pathways in our practice. We may especially emphasize mindfulness and clear seeing. We may especially emphasize the cultivation of wisdom or bringing a sense of practice into the flow of daily life. And this pathway through the kind heart, through the open heart, the wise heart, 
is one of the pathways. And I think it leads, actually, when we go fully in this pathway, it leads to the same place of awakening that mindfulness goes to. Different in the short run, goes to the same place in the long run. And it's a beautiful, ancient vocation to be oriented by kindness, by the kind heart, by what might be called love, called different names in different traditions. And it points to the way that we can orient our lives very, very simply by this dimension. Call it kindness, call it love, call it warmth or tenderness. That ultimately is there for all beings. And in fact, I would say all of existence. The Metta Sutta, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. Mark Twain said, kindness is the language that the blind can see and the deaf can hear. And we find it, versions of it, I think, in all spiritual traditions. From the Jewish tradition, the Talmud says, the highest form of wisdom is kindness. You see again that way that they're not separate when they're mature. Along the way, they can feel separate, and I'll come back to that. From the Christian tradition, um, this is from Thomas Merton, the great uh, contemplative. I actually... uh, I visit uh, the monastery where he was in Kentucky uh, every year and have uh, known over the years a number of the monks and and nuns from the nearby uh, Sisters of Loretto. This is from Thomas Merton. Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. That is not our business. And in fact, it is nobody's business. What we were asked to do is to love, and this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy. 
from the Islamic tradition, from the, the words of the prophet. Shall I not tell you of something which if you do it, you will love one another. Spread the greetings of salam or peace among yourselves. And, and also from the Islamic tradition, Rumi. Love is the water of life. Drink it down with heart and soul. Expressed in many, many ways. Uh, you know, we have our meta retreat coinciding almost every year with the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., which will be on uh, Monday. This is from uh, Dr. King. This call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concerns beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all people. This oft-misunderstood and misinterpreted concept so readily dismissed as a weak and cowardly force has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of humanity. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm speaking of that force, which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. That's what we're training in. Are we training in the supreme unifying principle of life? Do we have that in the advertising for the meta retreat? Maybe we should have it, maybe. I thought maybe I'd actually bring the actual voice of Dr. King in into, and we'll, we'll, we'll bring in Dr. King at other times also in the retreat. And I was wondering, yeah, I was wondering, Kyra Jewel, do you... We know that uh, Dr. King met Thich Nhat Hanh. Do you know whether they talked about metta? <laughs> yeah, Karajul said that in Vietnam, Martin, they call you a bodhisattva. So this is a, a short piece, and towards the end of it, he'll talk uh, some about love. This is from the letter from a Birmingham jail, many, probably many of you know that from uh, 1963. My dear fellow clergyman, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient in reasonable terms. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express 
a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of brutality is widely known. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than in any other city in the nation. These are the hard, brutal facts of the case. You may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. You speak of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? Oh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. King. Yeah, many people, and I think I agree with this, see Dr. King as the most significant moral and spiritual voice of this country, historically. And very strong connection, I think, with, with Meta, particularly in terms of bringing it out into the world. So if that's the larger horizon, then what is our practice look like? We practice really moment by moment, really just inclining towards kindness. You know, we first come to be present. We settle. And then we incline using the phrases towards Friendliness, kindness, warmth, love, where it flows the easiest. One way that I frame uh, the essence of meta practice is that it's really an intention practice. Maybe coming out of our wisdom, we want to go in the direction of manifesting kindness or love. And we use this method of phrases. And there are other methods for practicing metta I'll talk about in a moment, a little later. But here we find phrases which are evocative, and we work with a being towards whom, at the beginning, the metta flows most easily. And then we incline towards, uh, we go in that direction with the phrases. and. Whatever happens, happens, right? I like to say that metta is an intention practice, not a production practice. We're inclining towards metta and we do our best, but we really say our phrase and then we let it be what it is. 
and sometimes we may feel warmth, and sometimes nothing happens, sometimes it feels dull, it's like that phone book metta of which Gulu spoke. <laughs> and sometimes we uh, actually encounter that which is in a way in, in the, uh, stands in the way of metta. You know, that we say, we say maybe to someone who we feel really warm about, may you be happy. And then we find ourselves saying, you're already pretty happy. What about me? <laughs> I could use the little, what am I doing? You know, and we, and we go off like that because the essence of meta practice is we incline towards kindness and we see what gets in the way. That's it. And so we learn a lot. You know, this is where what we have called a few times purification practice comes in. We see a lot of what gets in the way. Sometimes it's difficult emotions. Sometimes it's memory. We know what shuts down the heart, right? It can be pain. You know, sometimes pain can close the heart. When we go into reactivity, you know, and we know the, really the core teaching of the Buddha, I think that Gulu mentioned just briefly, it comes from the teaching of dependent origination, the teaching that came to the Buddha on the evening of his awakening. The core teaching is very simple. It's that when we have something unpleasant or painful, we tend to push it away. We can call that one form of reactivity. We go into a kind of unconsciousness. You know, we're reactive. We may blame ourselves, blame others, react with language and so forth. The other form of reactivity occurs with the pleasant when we grab hold of the pleasant. We call that sometimes grasping. And the essence of our practice is to uh, transform the reactivity work with the reactivity and we do that in part so that when the um, when there's no longer the reactivity then the pain turns into compassion and the heart can be open and responsive but we see what can close down our kind and wise hearts and so we have, this is where we bring in our other tools. We bring in understanding of that core wisdom teaching about reactivity. That's right at the heart. It's a, really a simple way of talking about the Four Noble Truths. There is reactivity. Transform it. 2,600 years of tradition. That's it. Okay. Don't need to read all the books. That's... That's it. But we have to learn, we have to learn how to do that. So we see, we see what gets in the way. And we practice in different ways. The method of the phrases actually is one way of practicing that probably is not, almost certainly is not the way that the Buddha practiced metta. It actually comes, um, 
historically to centers like Spirit Rock from, um, from Burma and from uh, Sharon Salzberg practicing metta with Burmese teachers uh, in which they use a text called the Vasudhimaga from about the fifth century. And there they work with the phrases and the whole sequence of beings that goes from self to all beings. That's one method. The Buddha almost certainly taught more what could be called a radiating form of metta without words. Where you get the metta going somehow, you have the sense of the heart there. And then, you, and then we let it radiate outwards. Yeah, I'll be teaching this tomorrow because it's a little more body-based and energetic form of metta. I actually do both personally, but it's helpful to have that. And it's a very, um, it's a very powerful practice. It really goes towards, let me see if I have a, let me see, where is my quote about that? This, this is the Buddha's expression of that radiating metta, you know, I expressed it earlier, radiating kindness over the entire world, upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded. How's that sound? Anyone want to sign up for, for that? Okay. okay. You have. Okay. Um, and another expression, one abides having suffused with the mind and heart of metta, one direction of the world, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, and so above, below, around, and everywhere, and to all as to oneself. One abides suffusing the entire universe with metta, with a mind and heart grown great, lofty, boundless, free from enmity and ill will. We bring in again what Kyra Jewell was talking about in terms of metta going in the direction of being infinite and immeasurable and being a way of experiencing in which our whole of awareness is a vast expanse of kindness. And I think it goes in that way towards what we sometimes call non-dual awareness. And it really merges in that way with, with many of the other teachings, the wisdom teachings. We really go towards, with the metta, towards an awakened state in which there's wisdom, in which there's clarity, in which there's expansiveness beyond actually a sense of separate self. That's one way of talking about what we sometimes call awakened awareness. And metta goes there. And we can experience that some with the radiating metta more directly. But again, we train with the phrases and just the everyday use of metta. But I think metta becomes like a doorway and mindfulness and other practices are also doorways to this very expansive state beyond the separate self. Very close to what we sometimes call Buddha nature, 
or awakened awareness. In other words, metta is a doorway to go very, very deeply towards the deepest awakening. And it's also a moment-to-moment practice. It's also a practice that we learn to bring into all the different parts of daily life. Sometimes on retreat, we can taste this expansive state, but we also have to um, continue the everyday practice of bringing metta just into different activities, into places where maybe where the heart shuts down or where we get come into reactivity. You know, we'll talk about this towards the end of the retreat, but I love um, the creativity of a lot of people I work with who find ways to bring metta into daily life. You know, I gave a little bit of an invitation of that with uh, creativity with metta at lunch, right? And um, I hope it's okay to say one person reported uh, having a lot of creativity at lunch and found herself feeding good food to the child who didn't have good food to eat. And he almost like going towards healing that part. Or I think also of several people I work with who have young children. And they talk, you know, one story I remember is from a period when uh, I think maybe a six, seven month child was waking up many times during the night. Anyone know that one? <laughs> okay. okay. And a devoted student of metta was finding decidedly unmetta like sentiments <laughs> in the middle of the night. You can imagine, right? Why can't it be different? And, but had enough dedication to metta, so, you know, maybe after a few repetitions said, oh, I know what to do. When I wait, when I'm woken up, for this second or third time at 2 a.m., it's time for meta practice. Or another person saying, you know, um, my five-year-old is really pushing on the bounds right now. Okay, time for meta practice. Right. All these different ways to bring meta in. And we can experiment with that here. I actually, some of you know, um, I am a a lap swimmer, and when I do laps, I do metta, one being per lap. (laughs) Although I I repeat many of the beings, anyway, I have a whole routine, and sometimes I have to be a little bit careful not to collide, But, but basically, this is, this can be the inspiration to keep bringing metta in, you know. Sometimes after the retreat, we have like what what we call a follow-up group to support people integrating metta with daily life after the retreat. And instead of it being a one-week experience, it can be a, you know, a one-month experience where we check in once or twice or three times every week or two, you know, and can be supportive for keeping, keeping the metta going. And 
having given these visions of the glory of meta practice, I also want to say that we know that there are concrete challenges to the metta. You know, I mentioned uh, one of purification, another one that we encounter, especially the first, second day, we can talk about is distraction, right? How many people notice the mind going all sorts of directions, all sorts of places, right? So we can name distraction as one of the challenges. Um, sleepiness, anyone notice sleepiness? Very, very common. <clears throat> Sometimes really not finding the heart accessible. Anyone notice that? Like I'm doing the meta practice, where is my kind heart, right? Right. So, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe I think it came out even in some of the question, maybe meta is not for me. Maybe, maybe I should have done a mindfulness retreat. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember when uh, uh, the first time I did a uh, longer period of metta. I did about a week of metta at a time before we had metta retreats. It was like the late 1980s. And I was doing kind of a self-retreat at a retreat center, checking in uh, with, with a teacher about every two or three days. And I did metta for a week, and it didn't, didn't seem to do anything. And I said, maybe, maybe metta's not for me. I was just, yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll go back to something else. And then one day over lunch, without even intending any meta, I heard myself say to myself, I love you. <laughs> so uh, what that points to is that uh, it's, it's mysterious how meta develops. It's mysterious how practice develops. I know that from, gosh, maybe... Um, I think, yeah, I think 48 years of practice. Okay. And I know in so many ways, things are, you know, we think that we know how things are working. The Dalai Lama said, analyze the progress of your practice every five years, <laughs> not, not day to day or hour by hour. It's mysterious. We know that if we stay with it, things open up and develop. So then there's the challenges of purification. And I'll just mention, and I think we'll continue with this tomorrow some, just how to work with some of the challenges. You know, for distraction, we develop more stability of mind. We see all the places that the mind and body and heart go, get more familiar with them. That's where the mindfulness integrates with the, with the, with the metta. We learn to work with a balance of uh, energy and stability of mind, which helps a lot with sleepiness. And, and, you know, and it's fine with sleepiness to, you know, take, take an extra nap or two. Probably for a lot of us, there was a lot to do to get here. When we get here, it's like, right, like that. So that, that's, and, you know, the, the purification is very powerful and we can, sometimes open to things on retreat that are not really available so much outside of retreat or practice. And we work with, we work with what comes up, uh, difficult emotions or difficult 
material from the past, sometimes even traumatic material, habitual tendencies, and we, um, you know, that that those appear, and there can be tremendous amount of of work. I think I'm gonna, in another talk I give, I'm gonna talk about some of my own work uh, with uh, what I've come to call the judgmental mind. You know, it's actually become a teaching area, which was not because I just thought it was a really neat area to teach about, but it came came out of my own inner work and, you know, some years of purification. Anyone notice the judgmental mind making an appearance, either of yourself or of another? About half the people raised their hand. Yeah. So we, we develop more stability of mind, more um, samadhi, which works with distraction, with sleepiness, with restlessness. Um, I think we've mentioned that uh, meta practice actually is one of the classical ways of developing greater stability of mind or concentration or samadhi. We're really steadying the mind, gathering the mind together. This is from the uh, philosopher Kierkegaard from the 19th century. Purity of heart is to will one thing. And from another uh, person from the 19th century, this was, uh, this is actually uh, a Russian Orthodox um, hermit named Theophane, who wrote about the way that the continual prayer of the heart brings about greater stability of mind. Theophane said, dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. And this is a larger, a longer quotation. In order to keep the mind and heart on one thing by the use of a short prayer, it is necessary to preserve attention and lead it into the heart. Where attention, when attention descends into the heart, it attracts all the powers of the soul and body into one point there. And so it comes about that, whereas in the initial stages, the attention is kept in the heart by an effort of will, in due course, this attention by its own vigor gives birth to warmth in the heart. This warmth then holds the attention without special effort. From this, the two go on supporting one another and remain inseparable because dispersion of attention cools the warmth and diminishing warmth weakens attention. Kind of a unity of stability. Of, and that's a, quite a, that's, that could describe metta, right? That's from a Christian hermit describing the development of the heart, right? And um, the way, the other thing that's powerful from that for me is that the direction of metta is that we put out a certain amount of effort to work with distraction, to keep coming back. And over time, the meta takes on its own energy. And we don't need, you know, ultimately, I think as Gula said, the phrases are a means to an end. 
when the metta goes deeper, the phrases actually drop away. And there's actually often a sense of energy in the heart, just like Teofane was saying, which also coincides, I know, in some of the Tibetan practices I've done. It's said that the awakened mind and heart resides right here. That there's, there's a way that the energy opens up. And when it gets stronger, we don't have to put out the same effort. It takes on a momentum of its own. And meta practice is like that. We, we put out some effort. As it deepens, it has a life of its own. And the effort becomes more effortless. That's quite, that's quite beautiful. That's the direction. Another way that the, you know, this training occurs is that we increasingly learn, we might say, to lead with our wise hearts. You know, that the meta practice really helped me tremendously in that way. You know, that I think my training, partly because of conditioning as a boy and young man, was to be somewhat disconnected from my body and from my emotions. Even though I was a competitive athlete, I actually was a competitive swimmer, you know, but uh, I wasn't really aware of my body, nor of my emotions. People would say, how, how, do, you, how do you feel about that? And I, I would give a, a cognitive answer. Anyone relate to that? Yeah. Not, not, just, not just men, of course. Yeah. And so... Metta became a way to actually, for me, one of the main ways that I reconnected with that kind heart and be able to lead with the heart. I actually use now these days, like in daily life, I often guide myself with a phrase, which you can totally use, no copyright, okay? Which is, uh, you know, I go into a situation and I, talk, I say, kindness, empathy, presence and let, let those three words guide me, which is really, you know, a way to bring that to, into practice. And so we learn, we learn how to lead with the heart. One, one person I worked with for several years, she developed a practice of continually asking. She was also raising a young one. What's the kind thing to do? It was, a, it was a retreat practice. It was a daily life practice. Continually asking, what's the kind thing to do? Kind of similar to my word, kindness, empathy, and so forth. And so we learn in the practice to, to lead with the heart. We learn how to work with simpler situations first, and then gradually bring it into even difficult situations, right? Where um, I, I sometimes think about um, the counterpart of tough love. Have you heard about tough metta? <laughs> okay. Because uh, metta isn't about being nicey-nice. It's really important. I and mean, we know that from like Dr. King. Right, like Dr. King, for Dr. King, 
wanted to go into tense situations with love, right? And this sort of advanced practice. And we, we learn how to do that by building up to from the easier ones to the more difficult ones. But metta isn't about being nicey-nice or being a pushover. We can have metta and still say no, set boundaries, say this is not okay. You know, stand up for something that's not right. Or stand up against something that's not right, sorry. Yeah. And so a little bit further also about this aspect of purification. It's very natural sometimes in meta retreats to have um, difficult emotions come up. Of course, that can happen in a mindfulness retreat. I've generally found in teaching both kinds of retreats that meta retreats tend to be a little more volatile when stuff comes up a little bit more, maybe because it's inviting that kindness. I don't know if that was wise to say the first day. <laughs> okay. okay, my colleagues will give me feedback on that. Okay. Um, but things can come up, you know, if there's uh, if there are unresolved issues or emotions, or you know, in our culture, we we often uh, don't uh, grieve very fully, right? And we may have had losses, and just you know, kept on being busy. Very very common, right? And so sometimes uh, grief can appear in a retreat. You know, in a meta retreat or at the right time, you know, something maybe left over from challenges of childhood or relationships to parents and so forth. These come up. And the general guideline, I think, is similar. I think, let me phrase something. I think Gulu expressed it something like this, that the general guideline for meta practice is that we stay with the phrases, with the meta practice, um, and when, uh, let's say, thoughts come up or emotions come up, if they're fairly short-lived, they last for five seconds, ten seconds, we don't really do mindfulness practice. We just come back to the phrases. But when something lasts for a while and has duration, like, you know, I'm feeling some grief come up and it kind of lasts for a few minutes, then we would switch to mindfulness practice and maybe even bring in compassion practice. But we would not stay with the phrases when something has energy and significant duration, at least for a few minutes. Just 30 seconds, maybe we come back, you know, and so forth. So that's a guideline for our practice. And that gives some room for this, this purification process. Yeah. So it can be all sorts of things. It can be at the level of the body. There can be knots and things in the body that are expressing themselves. It can be emotions. It can be sometimes uh, really repetitive narratives, you know, examples of maybe of self-judgment that just keep repeating themselves. And we can, you know, that could be, if they're repeating themselves and lasting, we would, we would bring in our mindfulness practice, name it, feel what it's like in the body, 
feel what the emotional energy is like, notice when one emotion leads to another and so forth. I think metta deepens in a few different ways. We gain, you know, we we have the energy of metta more and more there. We also bring the metta to more and more beings. We start where the metta flows more easily, and then we gradually bring it into other beings. We'll go through that sequence and stay with the ones where it flows the most easily the first few days, but then we'll go to a neutral being and a difficult one. Uh, and then to all beings, the direction of the practice, one of the directions of the practice is towards this um, expansive metta towards all beings that can be experienced as this radiating metta. Um, yeah. A poem I wanted to read. Let's see. So this is, uh, think about the extension of metta. This is a poem called From Blossoms by Li Yong Li. From blossoms comes this brown paper bag of peaches we bought from the boy at the bend in the road when we turned towards signs painted peaches. From laden boughs, from hands, from sweet fellowship to the bins comes nectar at the roadside. Succulent peaches we devour, dusty skin and all. Comes the familiar dust of summer, dust we eat. Oh, to take what we love inside, to carry within us an orchard, to eat not only the skin, but the shade, not only the sugar, but the days, to hold the fruit in our hands, adore it, then bite into the round jubilance of peach. There are days we live as if death were nowhere in the background, from joy to joy to joy, from wing to wing, from blossom to blossom to impossible blossom to sweet, impossible blossom. Another way that metta deepens is that the, there's increasingly this integration, this integration, not disintegration, uh, this integration really of wisdom, the kind heart, the body, you know, some of that can be experienced in the radiating metta. And so there's kind of an integration of the different parts of ourselves as metta deepens. Uh, there's a sense 
really uh, of the wise heart. You know, in the Metta Sutta, there's the speaking about the radiating outwards and unbounded. And that at the end, there brings in the wisdom teaching, freed from hatred and ill will, not holding to fixed views. The pure hearted one has clarity of vision. Right? So we integrate the, the wisdom and the vision. This is from the uh, great Indian yogi, uh, Nisargadatta. Listen for the balance of wisdom and love. I find that somehow by shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has. I become the inner witness of the thing. I call this capacity of entering other focal points of consciousness, love. You may give it any name you like. Love says I am everything. Wisdom says I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. Love says I am everything. Wisdom says I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. So we deepen by bringing the metta increasingly to all beings, to different parts of our lives, connecting wisdom, the wise heart, the awake body. And then we gradually learn to bring this into our daily lives and bring, bring metta into the world, and much, much like Dr. King did. This is from Gandhi. He said, belief in what he called nonviolence is based on the assumption that human nature in its essence is one and therefore unfailingly responds to the advances of love. Some of you know Cornell West, the, the great uh, writer, philosopher, activist. He said, the public face of love is justice. Bring it out into the world. I'll close. I'll close with a poem from about 2,000 years ago. This is from a text called the, the Terigata which is uh, from the early Buddhist nuns. And it's a summary of the path of metta. Full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, Fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen. I have followed the path of friendship to its end. And I can say with absolute certainty, 
it will lead you home. Let's sit quietly for a few moments. I have followed this path of friendship to its end. And I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. From 2000 years ago, over 2000 years ago. So we have uh, time now for walking practice. And we'll come back at nine for I think a shorter sitting. It's scheduled for half an hour. This is the first full day. We're gonna give a discount version <laughs> of the nine o'clock session. And well, I think we'll just go for about, maybe about 15 minutes with maybe a little bit of chanting at the end. And so you can come, I think, I think if I would think, uh, I was almost thinking we could uh, have a shorter walking and come back earlier. But I don't know if that would work. I think that gets too complicated, maybe. Does that sound okay? Come back for the discount version at 9? Okay. Okay. And we'll, we'll finish a little early, but uh, and we'll, we'll finish with some chanting. So thank you so much for your kind attention, for your practice today. And um, we'll continue. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.